0: Hi, this is Paul. Welcome to the podcast, Things I Didn't Learn in School, where my guests describe the big life lessons they've learned outside the classroom. My guest today is Pierre-Yves Bonnet, who is uh, a person with a fascinating background, initially getting trained as part of the French Civil Service and then having an international business career. Many of those years with Sakshen, which is a very well-regarded French Bank, and most recently was chairman of their operations in China. So Pierre-Yves, welcome. Things I didn't learn in school.
1: Thank you very much, Paul. Paul is a very dear friend. And as for myself, basically, I'm roughly the same age as Paul, which is at the same time very young and very old. And as a consequence, I want to talk to you about my life experience, basically all things I didn't learn in school. (laughs) <laughs> but I learned a lot in school.
0: <laughs> That's fantastic. So let's jump right in. So where did you grow up?
1: So I was raised with my uh, two younger sisters in a middle-class family in France. My family comes from a quite conservative background. Hmm. And I was raised a Catholic. So the two most important things we were taught growing up were the importance of family values. Hmm. And second, the emphasis on excelling at school, and notably in math. Really? Yeah. Unbeknownst to probably many of your uh, listeners, uh, math is a defining characteristic of French people. At the age of 12, I started to develop an interest in books, and books came in two ways at the time. There was literature, uh, there was history. Unfortunately for my father, I was not good in math. My father was trained as an engineer, Mm. and really valued the excellence in um, science. Interestingly enough, when he was 25, something like that, he did a master's degree in nuclear physics at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh. Oh, interesting. On a scholarship from the U.S. government. (laughs) And that influenced him and myself as a consequence all his life. You can imagine my father in the mid-60s in the U.S. with my mother barely speaking English. Mm. But they loved the experience. Uh The consequence was that even if we were in a, let's say, mid-sized provincial town in France, my father being a a plant manager, he insisted that we should be fluent in two foreign languages. At least one being parent for him was English. He sent me two summers in a row in a U.S. family. Once in Pittsburgh to his old friends Uh and once through those classical exchange programs. And for me, it was really a discovery. I was 15, maybe. And for me, it was very important because that's something I could never have learned in, a, in an English class. It rooted my love for traveling and also discovering new cultures. Ronald Reagan is president. Mm-hmm. You have uh, ET on the screens. <laughs> <laughs> and suddenly a French boy comes to the West. I would say um, it was not New York. Huh? It was not uh, Los Angeles. It was Pittsburgh. At that time, I never knew what I wanted to do in life. I was just like a happy kid, and my father said, as a second language, I advise you to take Spanish.
0: The importance placed on the math, is this date back to Napoleonic education and training
1: engineers? It comes back to Pascal and all the French mathematicians of the 16th and 17th century. Okay. The math was extremely important in the French education, for one reason, the French superiority in history, dating back from Louis the Fourteenth, was due to artillery, which French were masters of. And to do artillery, you need a very good understanding of math and physics.
0: From there, you're figure around what to do.
1: There was a lot of back and forth with my father. <laughs> I was not that good at math. And my father said, you have to be an engineer. I was saying, no, I want to be a history teacher. (laughs) And then we settled on the middle ground. The middle ground was going to business school because business school was a combination of some kind of soft skills and a lot of history, economics, law. But at the same time, it was also quite analytic. So that's what I did. Something you have to understand about the French system is that There is no college when you go out from high school. You have to choose your field. At that time, it has changed since, but at that time, it was very difficult for young kids who didn't know anything about anything. So just try business school. So that's what I did. And as a matter of fact, I hated it.
0: You hated business school?
1: Yeah. I was probably 19 or 20 when I started at the time, way too young to start a business school. Mm -hmm. I was so frustrated with the poorness of the teachings and the intellectual content of the business school that I finally convinced my father that I needed to start something else. Interesting. I had that sense in high school that the future was endless, the possibilities of intellectual content was endless, my teachers were great. And suddenly, uh, you you were in business school where you you were taught accounting. My goal, probably as a reaction to my father's ambition, was to accumulate diplomas to show him that it was wrong. Mm. So I, I tried my luck at <laughs> all sorts of exams at the time. Between 21 and 25, basically, I did nothing but work. I took exams almost as a hobby. I did two masters in law and economics. And I stopped right before passing two others in history and French literature. It was, this was crazy. But I had to stop for two reasons. The first is I had been accepted at ENA, you know ENA, Ecole Nationale d'Administration. Right. For that, I had to stop all what I was doing just to get into the school. And second, something I had forgotten Is I had to do my military service, when I was admitted to the school, I discovered that it was a condition to be admitted.
0: How long was military service?
1: 18 months. Wow. Okay. They said you have to choose where you want to do your military service. And I thought, the Navy, it's international.
0: And Edna, for people who are less familiar, it's basically, that's the school where all of the presidents and everything are trained in France.
1: Not exactly. It's all where the high civil servants are trained. But as a matter of fact, it, it turns out that two of the French presidents came out of this school. Three, actually. Three, not three. So then you go off to the Navy. So I go off into the Navy, and then... Uh, I'm in the middle of the, of the officer school and then the Gulf War one erupts. To be honest, the, the officer school was grueling. It was not a piece of cake. It was three months of hard, hard training, both intellectually and physically. Huh. And I'd say physically after my four years as a bookworm, for me, it was a revelation. <laughs> That that in the end your body counts as well. <laughs> Since it was the beginning of the of the Gulf War, at the end I decided to sign up an engagement for six months more than the regular military service was uh, was required to be able to serve in the Gulf War. Mm-hmm. I had to basically be able to drive a ship or to navigate a ship, so. Till this day, I keep it in my, uh, in my wallet somewhere. I have the right to drive a super tanker.
0: Did you actually serve in the Gulf War?
1: Yes, absolutely. I was sent to Dubai almost immediately. Mm-hmm. And I was assigned on a minesweeper. To be honest, the combats had, had almost stopped at the time. Mm-hmm. So basically, I was transferred from Dubai to Kuwait City. On the bind sweeper, I was commander in third in charge of 60, uh, 60 people. It was still dangerous work. Basically, our job was to cut the mines with a big scissor, <laughs> which were in the Iraqi field, and put them back in the Iranian waters. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I I, I really remember from that, because at some point in time, obviously the conflict was uh, uh, going really down and we had less to do. Uh, We had long stints in uh, Kuwait City. Uh So in in Kuwait City, we were smuggling uh, VCR, uh, which was an organized trade with all navies in the world. And it was taking a lot of time, but it was quite profitable. And the second thing I remember is that... You mean
0: you guys were bringing VCRs in on your battleship and then selling them there? Yeah. As like a secondary form of revenue? Exactly. (laughs)
1: Amazing. Okay. And I challenged the U.S. Navy to say they didn't do it. Okay. (laughs) Good to to know. Managing 60 people from very, very different backgrounds on a ship that can go afloat, It's a very valuable lesson in management.
0: What was the lesson you took away from that?
1: The lesson I took away from that is that you're never really in charge. You're only in charge if you have some form of understanding or commitment from your staff. It's extremely important to have management rules laid out from the beginning, which is basically how many how many stripes do I have on my shoulder? Mm-hmm. And that's a basic thing that I, I respect from the army. When you have a community of 60 people on a ship, if someone says you're in the middle of the ocean, I want to quit being on the boat 200 miles from the near coast, oh, oh, it's going to be an issue. Huh? Oh, I'm jumping off. Uh, that does not happen in very tight communities. Right. So I, th- I learned that. Hierarchy is extremely important, but hierarchy doesn't come with some form of acceptance.
0: And so then you go to finish the education program.
1: Yes. And basically, that's something I I want to say about Enna. It's grueling. It's very competitive. But what you do in Enna is one year, you're in some location. This can be a remote post in France or an embassy somewhere. And the second year is uh, you are basically put against your classmates under the vigilance of other alumni, which are high civil servants that will teach you how to navigate the ministries and the bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. I spent a year in the Mexican-French embassy.
0: What was that like?
1: First of all, you have to understand the context uh, this time in, in Mexico. So basically, I had a diplomatic passport, which was, for me, something incredible. And as a matter of fact, I was second secretary of the embassy, really chief of staff of the ambassador. And the period was extraordinary because he was the, under the Salinas administration. And at the time, there were three things that were happening. NASTA agreement, the uprising of the Chiapas insurgents of subcomandante Marcos. And right after I left, assassination of the official candidate. And to be honest, because I think I know Mexico quite well since the drug war was not in sight at all. Nobody was talking about drugs in Mexico at the time. It was all about Colombia. And it will also reflect on my uh, things I didn't learn in school. Okay. So the ambassador, which was quite an old man, was one of the last foreign affairs undersecretary to be appointed by General De Gaulle himself. So he yeah was in his early sixties maybe at the time. And he had an incredible career as a politician, an entrepreneur, a teacher. And then at the end of his career he accepted the job in Mexico for love of the country. And then I remember very vividly, in May 93 he told me. I hear the sound of marching boots in the south. I was like, okay. And then he said, maybe the Guatemala guerrilla is moving again. In any case, from my experience as a French resistance fighter, or something like that, I want you to investigate. So go to San Luis de las Casas which is the capital of Chiapas. And then without identifying yourself, just stroll around and get me a report. I was too happy at the time because I, I, I took my U.S. girlfriend, uh-huh. which, which is my wife now, with me. And I, I was like, okay, two weeks vacation in the south of Mexico, paid by the embassy. That's incredible. So I... I went traveling into the Virgin Forest, I met farmers, I played the tourists. That's also something a lesson in management. I came back saying, these guys are peasants, nothing is going to happen. These are uh, the quietest town you can ever see in your life. After, after that, the uprising of the Zapatistas started six months later. <laughs>
0: man that is humbling humbling experience that very really humbling but even that you could go there now yeah. i mean mexico is so dangerous now that the idea of taking a road you know driving around these types of areas what a change and there was no sense of that when you were there that there was the coming drug war which is amazing and then why do you think you completely missed it it was basically nobody would tell you the truth because you were an outsider
1: or or what First of all, I was a young guy, completely unaware of uh, small signs at the time. You know, I was I was like a graduate, uh, trained in economics and everything, and I couldn't sense the real way people felt. Even if I if I spoke decent Spanish at the time, it was it was too complicated. Amazing. So as you said, as you said, it was a very humbling experience.
0: And did the the ambassador who sensed it all ahead of time? Did he ever speak to you about that?
1: Stay with us; we'll be right back.
0: Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account?
1: Actually, I had left before that. I had left Mexico before that, so I didn't have the opportunity to to talk to him about that, but I would exactly know what he would tell me. <laughs> you don't see anything.
0: Uh-huh.
1: That That's something that's probably um, reflecting on that, is that there are a lot of weak signs everywhere, uh, on everything. How can you be savvy enough because you're trained to be completely analytical, just grab that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I, I remember the, the expression he used, huh? the sound of marching boots.
0: And do you have any idea where he picked up that hint?
1: In an embassy, you have various characters always, especially in problem geographies. Might take away that you need to rely on them, even if those individuals are shady. <sighs> But they can bring valuable information. Got it. I chose to integrate the audit body of the Ministry of Finance, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: where basically uh, it's extremely prestigious. President Macron is coming for that. President Giscard is coming for that you have a lot of people coming from that body. So I spent four years there, enjoying myself tremendously. There is always a financial aspect. in Whatever you do in in public uh, administration, you can supervise everything that touches the state. So I spent uh, my four years crisscrossing the French countryside uh, and uh, international, which is coming to my first experience in China. Which was in 1997.
0: You spent a bunch of time in Africa too, as part of that, correct?
1: Yes. Okay. Basically, Let's... there was a, there was a program with the World Bank, where, as a young official from the ministry, I was lent to the World Bank for seven months I went in Togo, which was also quite crazy and interesting. Huh? But but I also spent uh, four months in China in 1997.
0: And what were your initial thoughts on China and how did those shift?
1: Basically, when I went to China, I was like, okay, this is a developing country which is growing very fast, but we need to know if the French government dollar that is invested in China is paying off for the French companies. That was my basic assessment. And I very quickly became overwhelmed by what was happening in China at the time. There was only one tower in Pudong. There were very few elevators working in Beijing at the time. But I sensed that basically China did not need us. Hmm. And very quickly, it was not a developing country anymore. So that's what I felt. It was the energy, the drum that you sense when you go to Shanghai, when you go even into secondary cities at the time, it was just like scaffoldings everywhere. And I reacted as an economist. I was like, okay, there is going to be inflation. There are going to be bubbles. It's going to be difficult. But the reality is the country was moving very fast. Plus, it's also, it was also by... Real first interaction with chinese with Chinese people
0: if you contrast these your experience in Mexico, which has had such a difficult time since you were there, basically turned into uh like a civil war France and then china mm-hmm. in all of these the things that has struck me with age is how dominant and influence culture is that you might have the same type of economic framework, you know, supply, demand, prices, whatever that you're operating in, but the culture is so dominant. Is that what your perspective was?
1: As individuals, we have all the same basic needs. Food, feeding our children, reading them, and then all the rest I think is fiction. Companies, states, Everything. The reality is that as of today, if I'm comparing, and let me introduce as well the US in the picture, because I think it's important. Okay. Uh, Mexico, very likable people, society, but totally dysfunctional. Uh, China, very effective, has a global society, very, very effective. I mean, uh, uh, living in China, I was impressed. I guess, on small things, huh? just uh, sweeping the floors, the interactions between uh, men and women, things like that. But France, in my view, of today, mired in the past. I clearly admire China, even if I'm not in agreement with some of the, of the things they are doing, and, um, the control of the state, and the way they. They are some way a bit more cynical than what can really think about. But in the end, it's this fiction that uh, promotes society. It's what do you believe? Do you believe in your leaders? Do you believe in your uh, potential as, uh, as telling a story? Mexico has never believed in itself. China is always believing in itself. And they don't need anybody else to believe in it, uh, Hmm. which is why I don't think they are going to conquer the world. I don't think so. They really have to fix their own problems before embarking on on something grander, which which they've never done in history. And then there is the US. Mm -hmm. What is going to happen to the US in the next 20 years? Do you have a prediction? It's not going to be a role model anymore.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: They are going to remain the dominant power in any case. What they have achieved uh, in the past, it's going to last for, for, for very long time, as an example. But its, it's people has, has to open up a little bit more.
0: The U.S. people need to open up more.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: yeah. And the, the French decline. Where is France stuck?
1: France is a mid-sized power today. The problem is that the, the, the goal, myth, methodology of French grandeur and going back is, in my view, at the same time, something that is extremely useful in diplomacy and politics, but at the same time, not a reality anymore. Where are French uh, true advantages today? First of all, and I think that's a question you ask me, huh, is what is the future of the EU? Mm-hmm. In the end, it relates to that. Huh? Can France be, be big without the EU? I don't think so. When you look at what happens in the sub-Saharan Africa, mm-hmm. Africa uh, continent uh, today, uh, 900 million people twenty forty, two billion people. One big issue for the West, and uh, it includes the US as well. It's not only France and everything is what are we going to do with Africa, they uh, develop uncontrollably and uh, with the ways of the past, Mm -hmm. it's going to be a problem.
0: Do you have a forecast?
1: And I would say uh, 2 billion people, 25% of GDP in uh, 2045. The issue is, uh, are we going to help them develop or are we going to have uh, 25 million migrants uh, coming from all over? So our best interest is to help Africa. And that's my point. Mm-hmm.
0: We've taken you off course. You come back. So this is your first experience in China. Then you come back. You finished at the Ministry of Finance. And is that the completion of your government
1: career? I was perfectly happy as a civil servant. I had secured a nice position in the embassy in Argentina uh-huh. as head of the Economic Services. And then one union, trade union of the Ministry of Finance, complained that I was too young for the position. And then it gave a spat, and eventually I didn't get the position. And then the, that's when I left for the private sector. And McKinsey was like, oh, okay, let's grab him. So I spent three years at McKinsey. And for me, it was a very, very difficult time. Why was that? Because I really admire the firm, the individuals. They are incredible online networks and they have an internal culture of sharing information that is unparalleled my view. But the truth is I was overworked. It was the time as the dot-com bubble was about to burst. Mm -hmm. I was assigned in Madrid for one year with uh, a two-year-old and a six-month-old. So in in the end, it it was impossible.
0: From there, you go to banking, Sakzhen. So you have this first experience in China, then you go back and are chairman of the bank there.
1: Okay, I was posted in Beijing. From somebody away from China, it's very important to understand. Living in Beijing is different from living in Shanghai. Or Guangzhou or Shenzhen. And then you have other cities as well that are very important, like Chengdu, Xi'an, or even third tier cities it's extensively, like Harbin, Hohot. My last trip was to Datong. Datong, which is the, the capital of the coal mining industry. Mm. And not to mention the countryside that I never really had the, the opportunity to experience firsthand for a long time. But uh, one thing I, I realized, which is something that probably escaped me from what I went in 1997 is that how China is diverse. It's, yes, it's a country. Yes, it has a cultural unity, but it's very diverse. Mm. And being in some place or some other is totally different. So that, that was my first takeaway. I think that some, Thing that uh, it's a bit uh, difficult to understand because of the unifying power of the of the administration, which has which has gone on for a long time. But truly, to understand China, you need to delve a little bit deeper into the cultures. Agreed. I don't know what that's that's what I think. Today, there are probably fifty plus cities that are more uh, that have more than one million people inhabitants in China. When I compare to France, there are probably four.
0: Right, yes, it has this massive internal diversity. Where did you come off? I mean, there's obviously there's been this massive explosion of wealth there. And then since she has taken over, there's been a real tightening of political control. And at least in my experience, you'll meet many, many people there who are quite happy with things because they're seeing their life visibly improve. On the other hand, there are intellectuals in Shanghai and Beijing, who do not like the rigid ideological control and probably would prefer a system that was more like Taiwan and less like China. Where did you come off with that after your stay there?
1: I would start with Hong Kong, because Hong Kong normally is usually a bedrock for for what what is happening elsewhere in China, even if it's a mirror of China. The thing is, is in Hong Kong, and I, I can give you my first time experience as a manager, people in Hong Kong were heavily divided. In Hong Kong, they can say whatever they want. At some point in time, you had people who were saying, China is doing the right thing. And people saying, no, we need more and more freedom. And uh, we need to be assertive. So I, I'm, I'm using uh, Hong Kong as a proxy. Why I'm using it as a proxy because it's obviously freer than anything else in China. The thing is, is to say the truth, I think it's undecided now. I've been traveling in uh, remote places in China, where suddenly people came up to me and said, "We need more freedom." I think and I'm learning and I'm looking at what's going on and it's not right, and I want to express myself. Hmm. And I've seen that uh, from my eyes. Uh, Which is something your listeners uh, can uh, can probably not understand before going to China, is that uh, uh, when you speak to Chinese people, they are free thinkers. They like to interact with you and and talk about things that that talks about personal freedom, democracy, and everything. And uh, they are not stupid. They balance. They balance their individual freedom, which is on a normal basis, incredibly greater than even 10 years ago,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but with some thresholds that they know they cannot they cannot go, go far from. And I feel that the last time I was in Hong Kong, uh, I was with my team in Hong Kong, all Chinese. And uh, incidentally, there is a lot to say about multicultural management, but there is a lot to say about monocultural management. About what type of management? Monocultural.
0: Monocultural management, yes. Meaning that it's just much easier to organize?
1: Frankly, when you work with 30 different nationalities, you find a common ground. As myself, as my experience as a manager in China, Mm -hmm. you work with 95% Chinese. It's a totally different game. Mm -hmm. And then I I was in Hong Kong and I was quite uh, amazed and the fact that people in Hong Kong, where uh, like I'm partisan, I'm I, I'm I'm all, all of them are Chinese, huh? and, uh, they were like uh, yes, no, uh, and the cultural divide is complicated. I
0: could keep talking to you, Pierre, for like two more hours, but it's it's late in France.
1: Let me give you my my position on the European Union, and uh, let's start with uh, I'm a staunch promoter of the European Union. The first thing is, I I reread the Treaty of Rome, 1958. The The statement of the Rome Treaty is, the goal of our nation is an even tighter union between its members. Okay, you can interpret that like you want but I think it's important. It's the first time uh, uh, one uh, member joins and secede, secede. Mm-hmm. Not, not, not a surprise. No? Uh, De Gaulle vetoed the UK twice a membership application as a Trojan horse. So they are out. The, the issue with the, with the EU is which is deepening the union or enlarging the union. And then, obviously, in 1989, because of Germany reunification, there was no choice. It was like, okay, the Russian submarines come here, but the, the reality now is that 27 is not working. I, I was a young uh, official and uh, sent to Brussels to negotiate. Something completely idiot, uh, which was at the same time, uh, should the listings of companies in France or in Belgium or in Holland uh, be the same as listings in Germany and the provision should be the same? And uh, once again, the old diplomat told me, oh, you've joined the civil service, you're, you're very bright. You know that the civil service time is taking 10 times more than the real time in life. And I said, yes. And I joined because I want to change things. And he uh-huh. said, uh, what, you, what you don't know, uh, young man, is that at the European time is taking 10 times more than the civil service time.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: <laughs> so it's totally ungovernable. So there are, there are only three options. The first one is probably politically very complicated. It's deepening at the core. France, Germany, Belgium, Italy. Luxembourg, Holland, maybe Spain and Ireland, where we will have a much more fiscal and bank union and where there is a possible economic policy there in those six states with a decision making process that is not very different as of now. The second option is free for all, strictly economic free where you can join, uh, you be the UK, okay, you can join, everybody is fine, it's great. I, I think The fact that it has already been achieved and you forget Greece, Portugal, Hungary, if they fail, what about the euro? But do we need them? And then the third one, which is the most ambitious but completely realistic, is giving a political legitimacy to the European Union. And then with democratic institutions, that will never work because people are not ready for that. Obviously, that also depends on Russia, the US and everybody else.
0: That sounds pretty concerning, oh, of
1: course. But <clears throat> that's what I'm, I'm when I'm looking at the EU history. It's not a history of uh, uh, defining progress and uh, enlightening. It's a history of muddling through.
0: But if you put together the the population explosion that you're referring to in Africa, it'll put a lot of pressure on the next twenty years on a political organization that is muddling through.
1: Absolutely. You're right, for me, but it's three is not an option anymore.